0: All right, good morning, good morning. You can find your seats. Welcome, Radius Church. I'm JT. If we haven't met before, good to see you. Last week, we were able to celebrate some baptisms right up here. And then David Kaya actually talked about his experience with baptism, which is a little bit different than ours. But when we're looking at baptisms, I thought it was a great way to kind of segue into this book of 2 Timothy, because what happens at a baptism is you have this individual who comes up in front of everybody. It's this really bold and courageous act, not just because of the public speaking, but you come up in front of somebody, you step into this cold water, and you let yourself go limp. And then somebody grabs you, and often they like put their hand over your nose, which is really weird and awkward, and everybody's looking at you, and then they throw you under the water. And if you're not someone who grew up as a Christian, or in the south, then maybe this is a really weird thing because they're just putting somebody under the water and they hold them there and everybody's watching and they're smiling. (laughs) And then you raise them back up and they start shouting and praising and doing things that are weird and that is what our baptism is. And it's a really good picture of the gospel in just one quick action. It's the fullness of the gospel because what happens is this poor person goes limp, lets go of all control, and says, I'm giving my life over to Jesus. And when they do that, they agree for Jesus to take their old self, to put it under the water, to kill that old self, to put it to death in all the things and desires that we used to have. And then with Jesus, they say, now I'm new. I'm a new person. And they say that to everybody out in the audience. And they say, you hold me accountable for that. That's the beauty of baptism. And it's an excellent picture of what the first step of Christianity is. Because this is about, this is about the, the crucifixion of Jesus and then the resurrection. Because the first step to Christianity is a willingness to suffer it is a giving up of your control and a willingness to suffer and the beginning of a life for jesus is the end of a life for me let's pray and then we'll get into what the word of god says father we we thank you that we actually believe that your life is better lord that your life is better than whatever we had in store for ourselves and Lord, I know there's people in this room, and myself included, who can think about what life would have been without you, and it's a terrible picture. So Father, I just pray that you, you would wash over this room, use some of the words that I say, would you give us the attention to your spirit today to allow you to move and to change our hearts and to give us the spirit of power and love and self-control that comes from you. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jean Twangy is an author of books that I read, and she writes a book called iGen. That's her word for for my generation, Generation Z, because we're kind of the iPhone, iPad, everything else, iMessage age. And so she calls us iGen. And she does all this research on this group of individuals who are coming up. And at the end of this book, she kind of has a concluding statement for this whole generation. And she says, I genners are scared, maybe even terrified. And in summing us up in kind of one word, she said, We want to be safe. We want safety. There's another guy named Jonathan Haidt, who is a similar leading researcher like Gene Twenge. He is writing a book called The Anxious Generation that he's about to put out. Maybe you don't read books. I do. Maybe you don't, but you know it. You've seen it. There is this epidemic of anxiety. One out of five people in my age category have been diagnosed with anxiety. That's not the self-diagnosis. And more than that, It's not just the the young people generation trend. It's all the way across the board. There is uh, a deep-rooted sense of fear across a lot of the people that we know. And you know individuals. You know your parents. You know your kids. You know your students. You know your teachers. You know people who struggle deeply with a sense of fear. And somehow, (laughs) we have tried to control so many things. We are very powerful people these days. And yet, somehow, Instagram has a way of making loneliness more inescapable. And somehow, ibuprofen has a way of making pain more excruciating. And somehow, Netflix has a way of making entertainment more boring. Somehow, air conditioning has a way of making the heat more painful. Somehow, TikTok has a way of making fame more petty. And somehow, the iPhone has a way of making community more difficult. Because control has a way of making us feel more helpless. We are the most powerful people in the history of the world, (laughs) by a lot. And even as we're spiraling into control, somehow... Anxiety and fear would tell us that we are very, very out of control. And that makes us scared, maybe even terrified. Because all of our helping has become helpless and all of our controlling has become uncontrollable. And so the question that we ask as Christians is we say, well, there's got to be something more. We need a helper and so Paul is writing this book called 2nd Timothy. He's writing it to a young man named Timothy. So I'm kind of like doing it from the opposite side, talking about this. But Paul is writing to this young man, Timothy, who has all of these pressures of fear on him. In a society where it is really not good to be a Christian. You have all kinds of dangers. Nobody likes you. They think you're really weird. (laughs) And this is what Timothy is growing up in. He's he's filled with a culture of anxiety and fear that is being pushed on him. And Paul, the intent of this letter is to say, no, don't succumb to that. Don't play into that. You have a different spirit in you. And so here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1. One, let's, let's meet them together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child. Do you hear the affection in his voice? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears when they parted, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmama Lois and in your mama Eunice. And now I am sure it dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And here's the verse that you should really remember from today. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love, and self-control. I was listening to some popular music recently, which I don't always do, but since I graduated six months ago from college, I feel like I'm quickly becoming irrelevant. And then I'll become like most of you. And so, (laughs) I started listening to some of the popular people like Ariana Grande, like Julia Michaels, 21 Pilots, this guy named Jake, but he spells Jake with a V because that's weird and cool or something. He knows him. Uh, that's good. Jake, all these people have written songs about anxiety because that's what everybody's going through these days. And the thing that they keep saying over and over, here's the, here's the general theme. I'll sum up all of these songs for you so you don't have to listen to them. Nobody gets me, and I feel alone. You know what Paul does? What's the first thing that he does to encourage Timothy and to teach Timothy a fearlessness? He situates Timothy within a community. He says, you are not alone. He situates Timothy within a community. You see, the first thing he says is, Timothy, God is your father. So you have a father who's with you all the time, and so you are never alone. Timothy, God is your father, and grace and mercy and peace are from him every single day, and every morning his mercies are new. Number two, what does he say? He says, many people have gone before you, Timothy. Don't you dare act. Don't you dare be arrogant enough to think that you are alone in this and that you're the only one with problems. That is simply a prideful act on your point. You have many ancestors who have gone before you and have experienced hard things, Timothy. You are not alone. Number three, what does he say? Your mama and your grandmama did it before you. And they paved the way for you, Timothy. A lot of us in this room owe a whole lot to our mamas and our grandmamas because they worked for years and years to pave the way for our faith. You are not alone, Timothy. People have been doing it before you. Number four, even though you don't have a father figure in your life, Timothy, I, Paul, I claim you as my beloved son. You are not alone. In fact, Timothy, I'm with you all the time, every single day, because I'm praying for you. And for the Christians, for the church, we have this really unique ability to always be with the people that we love because we're praying for them before the Father. And so we're actually like engaged in their very actions because we're saying, Lord, I'm praying for that job. I'm praying for that relationship. I'm praying for th- I'm engaged in your life, even from all the way across the world. You are not alone. I was in Africa recently this past summer. I was able to work a little bit with David Kaya, who was here last week in Empower One, just this incredible organization. They're doing so much. It's crazy. And one of the things that was really beautiful to me that I learned from them is that when someone came to the Lord and had a new life, they would get a new name. And so I met this man named Mawa Sadiq. And Mawa Sadiq, I was asking him about his name. I was asking him about all these different things. And I said, so where, where'd your name come from? And he said, well, you see that man over there? And he pointed to uh, one of the leaders of his church. A man named Mawa John says, so that man, he took me in and he mentored me and he taught me about Jesus and he gave me new life by telling me about Jesus. And when he gave me new life, I took on his name. And so I call him father and he calls me son. That's why I'm Mawa Sadiq and he's Mawa John. That is what it looks like to be in a Paul Timothy relationship. Actually a renaming after this person who gave you a new life through telling you about Jesus. So, in a similar way, maybe a little bit different. Maybe we won't rename ourselves legally here. But when you get baptized up here, you come down. And why do we do it on a Sunday in public in front of everybody else? It's because when you come back up, you are committing to all the people out there and they're committing to you. And there is this family that comes around this person when they come back up. And all of a sudden, you are not even allowed to be alone. In fact, you're not operating rightly as a Christian if you are operating alone. You have committed to this people, and they have committed to you. That is the beauty of what the church is supposed to be. And this all reminds me of jumping off of cliffs. So I graduated from college. And you could have cheered for that, but you didn't, which is fine. Thank you. And when I graduated from college, I went to do something fun because I'm not someone who does a whole lot of fun things ever. And I just enjoy my normal days and things like that, which is not my fault. I get that from my dad. And I, went to go do something fun with some friends, which apparently fun is jumping off of cliffs, which was great. So we go to a cliff, and the thing that you need to know about jumping off cliffs is that you need to make sure somebody else goes first. <laughs> so I would you know, stand a couple paces back and allow the ladies to go first, and then they would <laughs> jump. <laughs> and you know you look down oh they're okay um how about a couple more people go and then i might think about doing it so you you always wait for somebody else to do something so that you can see that you do it yourself in the same way paul and timothy have this relationship where timothy feels the pressure of this world he feels the fears and the anxieties that are that are that are trying to honestly it's 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 trying to put you in a cage And he feels that all around him and he's looking for someone who could teach him how to live a fearless life. And you know, I think maybe this generation doesn't know how to live fearlessly. It's because they haven't seen it done very well. Because any problem across any generational board, male, female, as we talked about a couple weeks, is not just a problem for this singular group of people. It's a problem for all of society because we do this together. And so what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to lay an example for Timothy of what it looks like to actually live fearlessly. And Paul says, Timothy, I need you. I need you to jump. I need you to jump. This is the best thing for you to do. But here's the problem. When you, when you go to jump, you have to let your feet let go of the earth. And then you have to free fall. In other words, you have to go limp and let somebody else take you. You have to believe that Jesus is actually going to catch you at the bottom. So here's what Paul says next. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In other words, Timothy, do not fear to trust in this spirit, nor of me his prisoner. Do you know how Paul labels himself? He labels himself as a prisoner in a cage with Christ, not to other things, but just with Jesus. Nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Paul is doing a terrible job at selling Jesus right now. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death. Amen. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed as a prophet and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Here's what Paul is doing. Did you know that this is the last thing that we get from Paul? These are his last words. And so these are, these are desperate words from this man named Paul. And he's writing to his beloved son and he's sharing the thing that he wants Timothy to know. And, 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 and what, how does he start this? He starts it by sharing the gospel. I've watched a lot of Westerns in my day and there's five boys in my family and so we've watched a lot of shooting things. And one of the things about Westerns is that you can't shoot people in the back. But if you shoot them anywhere in the front, it's totally fine. And everybody's happy about it. So what happens is these people get shot. And inevitably, in this 12-minute scene that is uber dramatic, they fall to the ground, but they're not quite dead. In fact, they have about 35 seconds to say their last words to everyone. And when they say their last words, the singular woman in the show runs over to this man, and she kneels down, And she's crying with him and he's got some really interesting name like Bill. And she's saying, you know, like, Bill, like, what are you trying to say? And he's like, I just wanted to tell you. (laughs) And then he's done. And you never know what he's going to say. But I think what's really interesting about this and about Paul. Is that Paul is just saying what he's always said. And I think if your last words are going to be something different than what you've said with your whole life, every day of your life, then you've probably lived wrong. And if your last words are something that are new and not old and not something that has been a part of every moment of your life, then you're probably doing something wrong. But the beauty of this is that it's not even about these new words that Paul's saying. It's just that Timothy's attention is going to be locked on this because this is his father who's giving him these last words. And so he's going to take hold of what Paul thinks is the most valuable thing. And what does he think is most valuable? He thinks the gospel is the most valuable. And what is Paul really telling Timothy to do? It's it's such a weird kind of final call to Timothy. He's actually saying, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you with everything in me. I want you to suffer for Jesus. That is my desire for you. (laughs) How in the world could Paul come to... You see, we, we suffer for what we love. And we suffer for what we care about, which is why this past week, some of you dads in the room, you suffered and put to death your pride when you dressed up as some Disney princess sidekick and you're like Olaf and your little girl's you know, princess and you're walking around, so you put to death your pride for that. Some of you ladies have gone to Starbucks a couple times and when you go and get your pumpkin spice latte with whipped cream and like three shots of espresso, you are putting to death your wallets because it's like a $9 charge every single time you know who you are. And then there's some people who, who maybe had a tough weekend and engage in something that they used to do, in a substance, in a sexual sin. And we put to death our conscience for the sake of that thing that we love. And so, what Paul is saying is he's saying, Timothy, I need you to put it to death everything for the sake of Jesus, because he is the only one who actually loves you fully. And so, I want you to suffer. For Jesus. I want, wherever your time is, wherever your attention is, wherever your resources are, wherever all of your thought is, wherever that's directed, that's where your God is. And wherever you suffer, that's where your God, and the only God who truly loves you, Timothy, is Jesus Christ, and so I want you to suffer for him. I want you to be put to death so that he can raise you up to life. So Paul is teaching Timothy to have a, a fearless spirit, and then Timothy, if he's someone who's wondering where does he find this fearless spirit, Paul says, look at me, Timothy. Look at your spiritual father. You want to have a fearless spirit? Look at me. Do you not want to look like me? I'm full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Here's what a crazy church would look like. It would be people who actually want others to look like them because they've been filled with the love and the joy and the peace of Jesus Christ. We have a community like that. That is going to wreck a city. That's how bold this man Paul is. In fact, here's what he says to sort of finish up. This passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Timothy, look at me, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced, Timothy, do you trust me, Timothy? Because I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow me as I'm following Jesus. This is the right way to go by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. So Tabitha Ross was our cliff tester. (laughs) And she was the one who had been around to these cliffs before. It was in her backyard kind of a place. And so she would get to the cliff and all of us would wait for her to do that. And I remember one cliff in particular She stops because it's a little bit higher than the other ones. And she looks at us and she says, don't do anything stupid. In fact, don't move at all. Don't wave your arms. It will hurt really bad. In fact, don't think. Just jump. And I'm behind her, you know, texting the important woman in my life, my mother, and telling her I won't be there tomorrow or something. But Tabs jumps off and We see her go down and we see her come back up. And then the next person jumped off, and then the next. And then I could see that I had the ability to do that as well. Do you know what the setting is when Paul is writing this book? Paul writes this book about 64 to 65 AD. In 64 AD, there's this man who is leading Rome. He's the emperor of Rome. His name is Nero. And in 64, there is a great fire of Rome, the greatest fire that Rome has ever seen, and it wipes out most of the important things in all of Rome. And so Nero takes this this heat, no pun intended, from all the people around him that he allowed this to happen. And in trying to shift the blame, Nero finds this kind of obscure group of new people that a lot of the people hated, because they didn't worship the same gods, and because they were affiliating themselves with people that were unspeakable and unmentionable and untouchable. And they were called the Christians. And Nero finds this group, and he begins to persecute this group. He actually begins to kill them by the drones. Uh, Here's here's a writing from a historian of that time, a very famous historian named Tacitus. He says, the Christians were covered with hides of wild beasts, They perished by being torn to pieces by wild dogs or they would be fastened to crosses and when daylight had gone, burned to provide lighting at night. Paul is so captivated by something, something, that he would encourage Timothy to be ready for even that. In fact, he would beg him To join in that. Paul is sitting in a cell. He's in prison. He's chained. He is alone. And outside of that cell, people are being burned as torchlight, as lamp posts for the Roman government, for the imperial house. And yet Paul has the audacity to tell his son, the person that he loves, maybe more than anybody else, to be ready for that. Why in the world would this man think, how can Paul even do this? And we see it in the verse before. How does Paul do this? How does Timothy do it? He sees the fearlessness in Paul. How does Paul do it? He sees the fearlessness in somebody else who went before him. His name was Jesus Christ. And the uniqueness about our religion as Christians is that our God, our very God, suffered for us. And and in his acts, the guy who was perfect, who had no wrong with him, and his act of being put in front of everybody, nails through his wrists, he taught us how to live fearlessly. And then he said, I'm giving you the spirit that I have, and it's full of power and love and self-control, and you can have it if you just believe in me. Because here's the thing about, about a life of fearlessness. You can't live a life that is fearless, unless you believe that somebody else controls it and you can't live a life of fearlessness unless you believe that that person is good and loves you because then you can open up your hands and hold it out to him and let him take control i was driving up to chicago which is where a lot of my friends were it's where i went to school And I was going to, like, a birthday party surprise thing. I kind of grew up loving pranks. I did. But the problem about pranks is that it makes people cry sometimes. And that's happened a few times. But I get it honest from both of my parents. They're both pranksters. You can ask my mom about the fake pregnancy test. And (laughs) I drive up there. And while I'm driving up, I'm thinking of this surprise. A lot of us are kind of coming in to, to... To surprise of friends. And I'm like, I hope he's just had a terrible day. (laughs) You know, have you ever felt that way before? Maybe not. Okay, I hope that he's had a terrible day. And then we're going to come in and we're just going to like make everything better. And then that'll make me feel good, even though he's had to feel terrible for the whole day. But I'll feel great about it. And I was thinking, you know, maybe that's not what Jesus would do. And then I was thinking, I don't think that's how Jesus... Wants to see us. I don't think when I think of Jesus and Revelation says he's coming back and he's coming soon at a time when we don't know. I don't think he wants to find us with a frown on our faces. But I think even though he asks us to suffer for him, he he wants us to have kind of that knowing smile. Like we have the greatest inside joke that's ever been told before, and we're holding that. And I don't think he even wants us to be surprised when he comes. But when the lights go out, and when they actually come on for the first time, I think he he wants us to be waiting for him, ready, waiting to see him. And I think the only thing that he wants to happen when we actually come face to face with him, and it will happen, is that he's going to be so much greater than we had imagined the whole time. And so when he comes and we come face to face with him, we will fall straight to the ground, trembling, quaking before him. And all of a sudden, a lot of our anxiety and fear will disappear because we'll stop thinking about us. And we'll just be thinking about him, consumed with him. Because when we stop thinking about ourselves, it's hard to be anxious anymore. And then he's going to look at us. And everything that we've ever given him and crowned him with all the jewels that we've given him in our life. He's going to have made them into a beautiful crown. And he's going to place it on us. And just like he does everywhere else in the Bible. He's going to watch us as we stand there laying on our face. And he's going to say, my child, do not fear. And in that moment, even though our whole lives, our fears have been melting away, thinking about him, they'll be gone for good. And he'll raise us up just like a baptism. And so Paul is begging Timothy to be ready to suffer. Why? Because he actually has that image on his mind at all times. He has that image that everything that is broken is going to be redeemed. And that all the attention that we've given the Lord, all the stuff that we've given up for Jesus, all the stuff that we've said no to, he's going to say yes to. And it's going to be so good. So the first step for any of us, for Timothy, For those who are baptized, for those who have been around in the faith for a long time, the first step for the Christian is a willingness to suffer. And the beginning of a life for Jesus is the end of a life for ourselves. So we're standing on that edge. We're ready to jump. But what we have to do what we have to ask ourselves this week is, can we go limp? And can we relinquish control? Because he calls himself the helper. Let's pray.